we were singing, he's the great I am. And there was a time that Moses was before this burning bush. It was a bush that was never consumed, but it was on fire, much like we ought to be, right? But as, as he was talking to God, God, he asked God, who do you say you are, basically? And he says, I am. He is the I am. I am greater than. I am more awesome than. I am the beginning. I am the end. I am. I am bigger than your problems. I am bigger than any health issues. I am bigger than time. I am bigger than death. I am bigger than life. I am. Do you need the I am in your life today? Tomorrow, the next day, for eternity. He is the I am of whatever it is that the enemy would throw in your path. He is the I am. The great I am. That's why we worship him as such this morning. Oh, it's this awesome time to worship him. So I've got a message that here's the, I want to um, share with you. We're going through the book of Acts Here's the big question. I don't know how long it's going to take us to get through the book of Acts. Because here's what happens. The book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, and there used to be a band out there, a Christian band called the second chapter of Acts. And uh, it was the rocky, most rocky band of its day. In fact, I wasn't sure if I was actually a Christian or not when I listened to it. It's just bizarre when you... uh, grow up in the church, some of the thoughts that go through your mind, but there was the second chapter of Acts. Now, the second chapter of Acts is this. It's the time that, and we're not going there today, so I'm telling you, this is coming. Second chapter of Acts is when uh, the apostles and their friends and their loved ones and their close ones were praying, and the Holy Spirit, the promise that we heard about last week, that God promised he would send power, came upon them. Now, what happens in a charismatic, charismatic Pentecostal-type church like this is that when you start, I believe this is probably what happens, is that you want to hurry up and get to the second chapter of Acts, because that's when the Holy Spirit comes, and we can then really preach and teach on the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to get there today. In fact, I might be halfway through the first chapter when we're done today. I want to touch base on just three verses today found in the middle of Acts chapter 1, and there's, there's really two primary events that go on in the first chapter of Acts. The first one I talked about last week, and that was when he resurrected and came to be with the disciples and spent time with them and ascended. That was the first section. The second section is Peter stands up and really tries to uh, take charge of the moment and, and kind of set in order the, the, uh, the people of that time, the, those that had joined together. And they, they had this falling out with an individual by the name of Judas Iscariot, uh, you might know him as the one that betrayed Jesus, and so he had actually ended up dying, so he was gone, and they had to select someone else to take his place. But we're not going to talk about that today. I want to talk about the three verses in between. It's in Acts chapter 1, so if you just um, if you have one of these pretty little uh, silk things in your Bible, just stick it in Acts for the rest of the year, because <laughs> that's probably what we'll be doing. But let me read those three verses this morning, and if you would read along with me, we'll start in verse 12. Well, before we start, let me 
You guys ever watch like uh, TV shows and, and, um, and so the TV show, they actually take the first few seconds to show you the past episodes? Okay, I'm going to do that real quick for you, okay? So the past episode is this. So Jesus came back after he resurrected in this awesome, beautiful body, right? It was one that could not age because it was a resurrected body. It was, it was the perfect body, that, which gives us hope, right, for later on and when we're in eternity. So then he comes back, he, he teaches, he trains, he develops and encourages disciples for another 40 days, and then they follow him to this mountain, uh, Mount, uh, uh, the Mount of Olives, we'll call it, or Mount Olivet. And so they go, and as they're at the mountain, he ascends into a cloud, and I believe it's this Shekinah glory-type cloud. It was God's presence. He ascended up into God's presence. Up is important because that tells us that there is a place that's up in heaven. And, and as he ascends up into heaven, um, the disciples are staying, standing there in awe. Wow, that would be awesome. And then they're told by the two angels that came to escort Jesus to heaven, what are you looking at? He's not here anymore. Go. Basically, go and do what he told you to do. You have work to do. Now go and do that. So that takes us then to this verse. Verse chapter 12, or verse 12 in chapter 1. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. Now, what's, I found here's some just facts, uh, the Cliff Clavin facts of this verse. So, I'm, I'm dating myself maybe slightly. That was an old TV show. Anyhow, the fact was, is a Sabbath day journey was only about two-thirds of a mile. It wasn't that far. Um, maybe for me, it would be far. But it wasn't that far in that day. It was a Sabbath day journey, so it was about six-tenths of a mile. And then they had, uh, and when they had entered, and what they had entered was this upper room. They had gone to this place, this upper room. Understand in that day what was happening was Jesus had just come under attack by the local people there in Jerusalem. They had crucified him. And the closest followers of that day had just seen him ascend into heaven. You know, I can imagine... It's much like, who likes football? I know it's baseball season, but who likes football? I, I, I like to watch football. Now, my team is the Pittsburgh Steelers. Has been since I was a six-year-old. In fact, I was looking at baby pictures of my son yesterday, and I noticed the car seat we took him in, home in was yellow and gold, or was yellow and black, because that's just how we roll in our house. But, um, but that's my team. Now, I can tell you that... As long as Ben Roethlisberger is quarterback, I feel pretty good. Now, he's not God, he's not Jesus, but as soon as he's hurt, which happens because he's getting old, I get nervous. I can imagine in that day that the person that was in charge, Jesus, mind you, Jesus was all God and all man, but he was definitely in charge. And I imagine just being in his presence was very calming, was really brought some stability to their day. They needed it because they were the disciples, and I'll touch base on the disciples in a minute. But it was, I'm sure, very calming to be in his presence. And now he's gone. What was that 
two-thirds of a mile walk like heading back into Jerusalem. I imagine they were a little bit a little bit of unrest was going on. Now, I honestly think too though that they fully believed in him at that point. I think every for them every thread of doubt that may have existed in someone like Thomas, doubting Thomas, was eliminated when he resurrected and came back and was present with them another 40 days. I think there might have been shreds of doubt or threads of doubt up until that point. But when he resurrected, all doubt went away for them, for these disciples. So, yeah, I'm sure there was this weird emptiness, this, this unrest, but there was also this resolve. That what he said we must do. Because the experience that they had with Jesus, the very very, uh, exact imprint of God the Father was an awesome one. And they, so they're, they're walking back, they go up to what they call the upper room. Verse 13, and when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Now, actually I'm going to go through 15 today it looks like. Let me tell you a little bit about these disciples. You know, I have this uh, really nice Bible software program. I've got Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars wrapped up in, in this library. It's all in the cloud, all online. And I wanted to know the characteristics of the disciples. So I go in to type in the characteristics of the disciples, and I got nothing back. So I went to this other place called Google, and I got pages of stuff. So, so let me tell you a little bit about these disciples. Simon Peter. Simon Peter, his characteristics was he was impulsive, Later, bold in preaching about Jesus. Simon Peter was very impulsive. There was Andrew. Now, I want you to kind of relate to some of these characteristics. We think of the disciples at times. The truth is these disciples were probably young men. They weren't, they weren't older gentlemen. I just had a birthday, so I'm feeling more like an older individual. But uh, they were probably younger men. And then, so then there's Andrew, Andrew. His characteristics was he's eager to bring others to Jesus. John, he was ambitious yet judgmental and then later very loving. You've never met a judgmental believer or Christian, have you? Or a person. How about even just in your family? You always think about it. Remember, you, you have that once or twice a year where all the family gets together and you just know so-and-so is going to judge me. Um, there's a TV show out called Friends. You've all heard of it, right? For some reason, I missed that whole season of this. I mean, I just didn't watch it. I was working. And uh, so we've watched a couple of them recently, and I just saw that there's one person on that show whose mom is very judgmental of her. And uh, anyhow, that's really an aside. Then there's James the Greater. Now, James the Greater meant that to be called James the Greater, there must have been James the Lesser. little joke that came up like a year and a half ago. We have this issue in our church that there's too many Dougs. 
And at that, there's a lot of pastor dogs. And so what do we call you? So somebody says, I know. Actually, my dad encouraged this. He says that your dad is Doug the Greater, and you'll be Pastor Doug the Lesser. I'm not holding any odd or offense. Yeah, it was nine months ago, and I haven't forgotten it, but (laughs) anyhow. So there's James the Greater. James the Greater's characteristics was he was ambitious, yet short-tempered, judgmental, but deeply committed to Jesus. Now, he didn't write the book of James. Um, Jesus' half-brother James did. So it wasn't that James. Then James the Less, very little known about him because he was less. <laughs> Moving on, Matthew. Matthew despised, he was a despised outcast because of his dishonest career. He was a tax collector. So he, people despised him. It's funny because he found an, a new identity in Christ, yet people still identified him with his old identity. Philip, his characteristics was he had a questioning attitude. Who likes to be around somebody with a questioning attitude? Right? Always questioning everything. Then there's Bartholomew. Uh, honesty and straightforwardness. And then Thomas. Courage and doubt. Courage and doubt. Uh, who is this? Well, this one is unknown. Characteristic traits. I can't find the name of it. And then Judas Iscariot. Well, there's Simon the Zealot, who was a fierce patriotism. He was Simon the Zealot because he was all about being loyal and proclaiming loyalty and proclaiming the awesomeness. He was a patriot. Judas Iscariot, we know, he was treacherous and greedy. And then later on, in the second half of the first chapter of Acts, we read about this man called Matthias. And he is the replacement disciple that took the place of Judas Iscariot. Now, the reason I took time to share those characteristic traits, these are the, the 12 disciples and who they were. We read about that in the first chapter. These were the, in the chapter, or verse 13, These were the gentlemen that went to the upper room. Now, because of their characteristic traits, I would imagine without being in the presence of the Lord and really coming under his authority and leadership, they would not, just passing on the street, become 12 disciples. They would not become a unit of 12. Because their, their characteristic traits would have just rubbed each other wrong, would have offended one another, would have just been like, I don't need to be around that, so I'm going to keep that out of my life. But what brought them together was Jesus. And, and as he brought them together, they got to live really closely together for this three and a half years or so. Later on, you'll hear that there was 120 of these folks in the upper room. That must have been a, a tight quarters. There's this there's this theory out there in, regarding churches and church growth that if, if 80% of your seating is full on a Sunday, you need to add capacity, multiple services, things like that, because people don't like to be that close together. Well, imagine being in that upper room and 120 people. For them, it wasn't about comfort with one another. It was about focus on what Jesus had laid before them. It was about focus on who God was. It was about following through 
on their purpose in life because the experience they had with God was so awesome, they couldn't help but to come together. See, for them, they had such an experience and such a knowledge of how much God loved them and how awesome Jesus was, that church was not optional for them. There was no other option in life any longer. Their only option was to go to the upper room. Yes, probably fearing for their lives because they were so close with Jesus, but they knew that they could go and be with one another and press in, and they did. How real is God today? Because God was so real for them then, they had to. They had to go for him. They had to go after him. I, let me uh, continue on. These all continued with, in, with one accord in prayer and supplication, with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And, in those, and, and with his brothers. We'll stop right there. So they all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. And, and, and these other people mentioned there probably totaled 120 folks. The, there's a, uh, what do you call those? In my studying, I came across numerous books, and I'm trying to think of the word. Uh, help me, what's a study guide? Commentaries. Wow. Came across a commentary, and, and here's what, some of what was said about this section. When they, had entered, when they had entered the upper room, that section in Acts 1.15 tells us that there were about 120 present. This included the 11 disciples, which would be the 12 minus Judas, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, the brothers of Jesus, such as James and Jude, the woman who followed Jesus, and others. What was interesting, at, at one point in time, the brothers of Jesus never seemed to be supportive of his ministry before his death and resurrection. You can look in John and Mark and hear where they, they really weren't accepting at that point in time, early on in Jesus' ministry, of Jesus and his ministry, his own brothers. But after encountering the resurrection Jesus, they were changed into true followers of Jesus. See, what happened for his brothers is what they mentally knew of Jesus was not enough. What they got to know through experience became more than enough. Sometimes we try to make sense of it, and it doesn't work. But if we'll uh, have the courage to press in and experience him at work in our lives, then, we can, then it removes all doubt. Stop and ponder just for a moment. When was it the last time that you experienced something that had to have been Jesus? There's no other thing. That could have caused that to happen, but Jesus. Don't forget those moments. Those are the moments that that you build your faith upon. Now next, as they continued in one accord, this wasn't just that they came together. This is what this author says is notable unity. It It wasn't just coming together in unity. This was almost like extreme unity. One accord. When, when we saw the disciples in the Gospels, it seemed that they always fought and bickered. So what had changed? Peter still had the history of denying the Lord. Matthew was still the tax collector. Simon was still a zealot. Their differences were still there. The characteristic traits I read to you earlier were still there. 
But the resurrected Jesus in their hearts was greater than their differences. Have you ever struggled through life and and had differences with one another? I was joking earlier about the, the comment about the greater and the lesser. But sometimes people would take that and hold on to that as an offense and then allow it to grow and blossom and become something big and ugly. There was a, when I was teaching, at one point, the students were doing a, a skit. And in this skit, it, it was a, um, a scene in a living room. And there was a locked closet off to the side. And in this locked closet was something that they would not reveal to you. But they were talking about it as like a, a bad story, something they didn't really want people to know about. So they, you know, they would refer to it kind of off on the side. Oh, you know that thing. We don't want to do this because of that thing. We would go do something, but you know that thing, that thing, that thing. And they, they eventually wouldn't even invite people over to their home anymore because of the thing in the closet. They, they would not start to even in, have any relationship with other, with other people because of that thing in the closet. As if they had a disease that they didn't want to spread. So as the skit comes to a close, the thing in the closet was this. It was a big, ugly grudge. What had happened is the grudge started small, and it grew, and it got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where they could not even have relationship any longer. That is not being in one accord. Being in one accord is taking all these things that grudge probably could take root, probably could set in if we allowed it to, would prevent us from being in one accord. I am convinced, hear me clearly this morning, I am convinced the biggest reason that the church has not been able to help lead a revival, and I'm talking the church global, and the church in the city, and the church here, is because of the conflicts that happen within the church. And then they're not dealt with biblically in such a way that grudge begins to grow and the atmosphere changes. And when the atmosphere changes, then the Holy Spirit isn't in the midst. And when the Holy Spirit isn't there, then the church becomes irrelevant. It becomes a place to sit and talk, not a place to encounter Jesus See, the disciples were able to do what they did because of their encounter with Jesus, because of their knowledge right here of Jesus. It wasn't because of this, it was because of this. And because they had learned to work through their differences in that three and a half years in the presence of Jesus, they were able, even with the characteristic traits that they had, to move forward in one accord and then set a world ablaze. For who? For Jesus. Jesus told them to go and be witnesses. Well, what, did they, what were they going to be witnesses of? They were going to be witnesses of their encounter with Jesus. What are you to be a witness of? Your encounter with Jesus. Will you encounter Jesus even this morning? Will you take the time out to say, God, I just want to encounter you? I, it wasn't but a handful of years ago, I remember being in a conference as a chaperone, so you're distracted and making sure the kids are all in the right places, and, and everybody's in the, in the sanctuary, and they're not wandering around the, the grounds, and, and finally it got to the point where everybody's there, everything's good to go, 
And this, this preacher was there, and he was talking about the Holy Spirit. And I thought, you know what, I need, I need more of that. I need a refresh, a renewal of that. And so I was free at that point just to say, you know what, forget it all. They're all okay. I'm just going to press in. I'm going to go after him. And I got to encounter the Holy Spirit, Jesus, and God on a whole new level again. That is available for all of us. We just have to choose to press in and go after it. So these disciples, in one accord, came together. Differences and all, they decided that they were going to do as the Lord had told them to do. There's three things. There's three things that happened up to that point. They they had already seen the Lord ascend. And then there was three important steps after that that they had to make, these godly decisions. The disciples, number one, were obedient. They, They obeyed the Lord and they went back to the upper room. Because he had instructed them, go and wait until I send the power, until I send the Holy Spirit, the helper. So they were obedient, and they went to the upper room, and they waited. Second, they were in fellowship. They did it together in one accord. They went and waited together in one accord, and they were in prayer. Three things that they did. They were obedient, they were in fellowship, and they were in prayer. What is obedience? See, obedience to God's will is paramount. Matthew 19, 17, in the, in the message version says, Jesus said, why do you question me about what's good? God is the one who is good. If you want to enter the life of God, just do what he tells you. Obedience, God demands it. In Leviticus twenty five eighteen, it says, Therefore, you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them. And then you will dwell in the land securely. God demands obedience. In Romans 6.16 it says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, that leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. I will tell you, we are obedient every day to something. Where will you declare your obedience and to whom and to what? To the flesh that leads to death or obedience to Christ, which leads to righteousness. Verse 17 says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Now, obedience is also integral with love. So, obedience and love go hand in hand. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 1 John 2, 5 says, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. By those who keep his word. We also know if you look at Moses, or I'm sorry, Abraham, obedience requires faith. Abraham had been living amongst where he had grown up. And had never ventured out of that area, and the Lord commanded him to go. And in faith, he went. It says in in Hebrews 11.8, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as his inheritance. 
And he went out, not knowing where he was going. He had great faith. And then, this is the part we all like, obedience comes with reward. Exodus 19.5 says, Now therefore I will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Dina and I, early on, we got married young, and so we had to grow up while we were married. And so we had to learn some things about finances. And one of the, the people that, that we're still attached with in this church is the Barras. And the Barras sat down with us, and they gave us financial counseling. Uh, and it was very beneficial for us. To this day, we still remember the counseling we had some odd, 20, some odd years ago probably 25 years ago. And, and the counseling, one of the things I always remember, that if we're obedient in our finances, we'll be blessed in our finances. Now, what happens is we tend to say, well, I want the blessing, so I'll try to be obedient. And what I shared with you earlier was be obedient because you love him, and then, hey, guess what? Blessings come from that. See, the disciples already figured that out. We love Jesus so much, and even though he's not with us right now, you know, today, it's, it, it, we become fair weather in a lot of things. We, we tend to, if Jesus left the scene and ascended to heaven, would we be resolute and still following him, who's no longer present? Or would we scatter all these different ways? The eleven didn't scatter, they stayed resolute because they loved him so. And because of that obedience... This blessing was going to come for them. Fellowship. Fellowship is this, sharing in the fellowship of God's love. We all get that opportunity to share in the fellowship of God's love. 1 John 4, 10 and 12 says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Fellowship, we ought to love one another. And here's the the twist. You know, they stick the knife in and then they turn it. It says this, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And maybe it's verse 13. Basically, there's a verse and it might not be that passage. But it says, if you do not love your brother, then you do not love me. What? What? How, huh? I love you, God. Well, how come you hate your brother? No, 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 no. I love you, God. No. If you don't love your brother, then you do not love me. Fellowship. Fellowship is a common devotional life of worshiping together. We do this every Sunday morning because we love God and He asks us to fellowship with one another. And we come together and we worship Him. Ephesians 5.19 says, Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Imagine coming to church every Sunday. And every Sunday you, you happen across your, your brother and your sister and your loved ones and they're just so happy to be together. Isn't it so good to be in church this morning because we get to come together and praise Him? Oh, it's going to be awesome. 
That's an every Sunday morning experience. That should be every morning and definitely every Sunday morning. Imagine encountering someone at a Starbucks or on the main street or in the workplace, passing someone in the aisles at Target, where two or three are gathered in his name. There he is in the midst. And you get to worship him and praise him together in the middle of Target. What's that look like? Hey, guess what happened to me? I got to talk to my coworker about Jesus. That's church in the middle of Target. That's fellowship. That's worshiping together. That's, this is the book of Acts that we're studying now. This is the beginning of the church. And it didn't end in Acts, it began in Acts. And it continues until he takes us home again. So this is the standard by which we ought to live as a church. Fellowship is also praying together. Acts 1.14, which I read earlier. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Praying together, fellowshipping together, and then breaking bread together as in communion. The third thing was prayer and supplication. Prayer and supplication. And in verse let me find it here. Verse 14, I believe it was. Together with the, or verse 13. Where is it? It is 14. They devoted themselves to prayer, and there's some versions that say, and supplication. Supplication is requests. Ephesians 6.18 talks about praying. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Prayer and supplication, prayer and requests. What is that in Ephesians 6.18? Prior to verse 18, we study about what we call the, the armor of God. You hear about the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes shod with the gospel of peace and the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. And you think about these things and these are battle, uh, this is battle equipment. And, and they prepare themselves with battle. But these things prepare you for, for battle. But it's prayer that is battle. There's preparation and then there's actually doing. And the doing is the prayer. These disciples, in one accord, these 120, they were in the upper room. What were they doing? Yes, they were obedient. They went to the upper room. Yes, they were together. They were fellowshipping. But they were praying. This morning, just looking around, I'd say there's about 85, 90 of us in this room right now. The difference there was there's 120 of them, and it was a smaller room. But they were pressing in and praying And it was 10 days before the Spirit came. Man, what were they praying for? I believe they were seeking God for direction. They were praying and and requesting uh, safety because there was some fear for their own life. I'm sure they were just communing with God. See, they spent three years with Jesus and he taught them in those three and a half years how to pray. You know, even the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, holy is your name. It just left me. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Oh, well, that's the second end of the... <laughs> Give us this day our daily... Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth... Amen. I think that's what the room sounded like. Honestly, I think it sounded like everybody praying. We, uh, we will. I want you thinking, because we're going to close the service this way, is we're all going to go into prayer. I want you thinking about what do you need to pray for. Because here's the awesome thing about church and church life. You don't pray alone. See, they were praying. And I imagine, yes, Simon the Zealot had a prayer and a request. I mean, he was probably like, God, I want all of Jerusalem to know you just as who you are and all that you can be for them. And there's, there's Peter, who knows? I mean, he was probably praying God, would you cause it to rain? And man, it's nice out today. And I mean, he was probably all over the map, but bold. And then there were some of those that maybe were even praying, man, their neighbors downstairs are kind of loud. Could you help them be quieter? I don't know. I'm making all this up. But they were pressing it and they were praying and they all had their own prayer. But they were in one accord and one mind. And what was the one mind? Jesus. Jesus. What I know is they encountered Jesus. What I know is that you've encountered Jesus. That encounter wasn't meant for you and you alone. (laughs) There's such a hurting world out there today. There's people that look like they have it all together, they have the mortgage. They have the car payment and they have the job. They look like they have it together. But when you peel back the layers, what you find is a lot of hurt. And then I I look and I'm like, okay, the Christians, the church, the believers have the answer. But they're kind of focused on the fact that they're not getting along. So I'd like to make sure that you have the answer you need, but we're still trying to figure out how to get along. And it's not just in this church. I'm talking about churches. The next chapter of Acts has caused such a division amongst churches that they can't get along. And then you've got a hurting and broken world out there, and we can't get over our own stuff to help them through theirs. See, the one mind that the disciples had that day, the 120 in the upper room was, they weren't worried about their stuff anymore. They were worried about what was Jesus going to do next. And Jesus, we're ready Jesus, we're ready. Jesus, send the power. Send the Holy Spirit. Jesus, what would you have us do? God, hear our prayers. God, somebody just walked in. They got the sniffles. Be healed in Jesus' name. That was their focus. It wasn't about, man, this person really bothers me. God, fix them. No, God doesn't change the circumstances. He changes you in the midst of the circumstances. And as you change, your circumstances change. 
But I also imagine in the upper room, it was a place that they were honoring one another. Here, let me get the door for you. Hey, you're uncomfortable because 120 of us are all kneeling in this little space. Let's move over a little bit. Let me help you. Let me be there for you. I want to see you in such a way where you can press in because I know that God's going to answer our prayers. They were there for one another. The church needs to know that when God said go, it wasn't to go create an environment of trying to get along. It was to go and be witnesses. Witnesses of what God has done in your life. We're really good at being witnesses about all the bad stuff. And I'm not saying you alone. In general, we like to complain when there's not enough rain, and we like to complain when there's too much rain. We like to complain about taxes and the politicians, and we like to be witnesses. But generally, it's about complaining. But God has done such a work in you. Think about the work he's done in you. Smile about it. Think about where you were and now where you're at. I got to watch two people get married on Friday night, and I think about where they were and now where they're at, Jennifer and Wilfredo. It's an awesome thing, the Santanas, because of the work that God has done in their lives, because of the work that God has done in your life. That's the witness that you're to take out to the streets, to the workplace, to the grocery store, to Target. the worship team could come. We're going into the upper room right now. Will you join me in the upper room right now? What's this going to look like? It's going to look like us being in one accord. So we're going to do some Christian calisthenics this morning. I'm going to have you stand if you would. And as the worship team starts playing a song for us to worship to, and it, it, it's going to create this environment where we're going to find some comfort because we're able to sing a song to the Lord. But I'm going to ask you guys to all that are physically able to move forward. And this becomes our upper room this morning. And in one accord, if you must do it quickly, lay down your ought against brother. What is ought? This little thing that became a huge thing that we stuck in the closet and called a grudge. Put that aside because it is what's keeping you from being able to be in one accord and pressing in and praying as the disciples did in that day. I don't know about you, but I look forward to the day, not the if, the when, when we cannot contain New Testament church in this building. I say it's a when, not an if. The if is saying we've reached enough. The when is saying there's a whole lot more to reach. What's keeping us is the atmosphere from being able to do all 
that he's called us to do. It might be the atmosphere here. It might be the atmosphere at work. It might be the atmosphere in Target. It might be the atmosphere. Wherever you go, you have the ability to change the atmosphere. And it starts with your focus. It starts with your prayer. It starts with your request. And it ends with your witness. That's where the atmosphere is changed, in your witness. I want our witness to be known. That's what we're commanded to do. They were obedient, and they did. We're to be obedient and do. So I want us to come up here this morning, and I want us to pray and worship. I want us to go after him. He will not let you down. You can go after him, and he'll meet you there. Dear God, I I come before you right now. Know my heart. Know our heart, Lord, is that we want to see your kingdom reign and rule in the community that you've placed us in. We want to see the community alive with your presence. May your glory be shown throughout all this community. And Lord, use us. Start with us. In one accord, Lord, I I, I pray that all the things that are preventing us from coming together to be in one accord, that we'll be able to move beyond that, Lord. That we'll be able to press in, God, and focus solely on what it is you would have us to do.